You hit that guy. He shouldn't have been standing. Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Well, I lost him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, he's already got one, you see? And welcome back once again to Gag Reel, the nonsense podcast about usually pretty uh, pretty nonsense comedies of film and television. I am your host, Ryan, and joining me, as always, is Will. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, 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 yourself. How are you doing, buddy? I am doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm... I'm okay. I've had a uh, a few long days here. I'm oh yeah. We're working on a million things at once, but also trying to watch you know the, these comedy films in between to kind of ref- refresh my brain. Yeah. And uh, I watched Midnight Run. I actually I kind of scrambled and watched it for the first time this morning. Oh wow. Uh, and it was a good watch actually. I didn't. I had assumed that it wasn't going to be like a kind of all-out, balls-to-the-wall kind of comedy. Going into it, it was actually a lot more comedically paced than I thought. Yeah, this... but, but we'll get to that. Yeah. I'm excited today to be talking about this movie that I just watched. Yeah. The, uh, what is this, 1986? 1988. 88 comedy, crime, drama, movie... Buddy up movie, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. Yeah, it it is. I it is. I, I was I was surprised when I was looking back. This is a part of a very important subgenre of comedy films that were very prevalent for a couple decades in the eighties and the nineties. Tape, uh, you know, like a tapered off in the two thousands, but it still comes and goes. But it was huge back in the day. This is a a, a subgenre of comedy that we have yet to do an episode on. The, very true. the the buddy comedy specifically yeah. in this in this uh the action the buddy action comedy you know and this this subgenre you know like it was not new in the 80s and i'm paraphrasing a little bit of history from the from an article in esquire but um you know like throughout film history there were classic buddy films all the way way before the 80s you know like films like uh some like it hot Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Freebie and the Bean, comedy buddy pairings like The Odd Couple, and so on and so forth. But in the 80s, there was a, a, a movie that came out in 1982 called 48 Hours, starring Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. And the commercial success of this film, and by, by the way, I can't recommend that movie highly enough if you're interested in the buddy action comedy subgenre, because every single trope that uh, follows in all the other movies is in full force in that movie. And every single one of those tropes are almost more extreme in that movie than all the movies that follow it. And so watching it now almost feels like you're watching a parody of buddy action comedies, even though it came first back to a little bit of film history. So 48 hours, big hit. Hey, wait, we're still at the start of the show. We're diving deep here already. I'm, I'm getting to midnight run. Okay. Yeah, there we go. A little prologue. Yeah. I like yeah. this. Keep going. So 48 Hours Big Hit, it opened the doors to dozens of these movies. And in the 80s, you know, you had your other big hits. You had your Lethal Weapons, your Tangos and Caches, your Running Scareds. And it, it did keep going into the 90s with your bad boys. And then they started running out of mismatched tropes. So they started throwing together all these other wacky concepts like Men in Black, where it's 48 hours, but with aliens. Or Shanghai Noon, where it's a buddy comedy in the Old West. 
and so on and so forth. I actually really loved how how hard they strained to keep the formula alive in the 90s. I mean, like, there's some truly great comedies were made out of some really dumb ideas. But anyways, smack dab in the middle of this buddy action flick heyday was the film that we're here to talk about today, which is Midnight Run. I love to travel by train. Oh, yeah? What do you think this is, a class trip? A tough ex-cop. Are you always this angry? A sensitive criminal. Oh, no, no, come on, come on. Cigarettes are killers. Why are we running away from the FBI? Because I got to bring it back myself, otherwise I won't get my money. They can't fly. They also suffer from acrophobia and claustrophobia. I'll tell you what, if you don't cooperate, you're going to suffer from fistophobia. They're seeing America the hard way. Why would you eat that? Doesn't taste good. At gunpoint. What did you do before you did this? What qualified you for this? He's gaining. No, get it. He's flying. Of course he's gaining. Robert De Niro. It is truly in your best interest to just relax. I'm totally relaxed. Charles Grodin. Two dollars, that's all you're going to leave? That's 15%. That's 13%. These people depend on tips for a living. From the director of Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run. All right, so, Will, do you want to kick us off with, with your kind of surface-level thoughts on Midnight Run? Yeah, love, yeah. Um, I think it's a really fun movie with a like that's entirely centered around just like this really unique pairing for a buddy comedy. Like most of the time when you get a buddy comedy, like they, they go out of their way to make sure that these are like a mismatched pair. Usually in the most overt way, there was like, there's either a normal guy and a completely wacky guy, or there's like a fish out of water character. And this mm-hmm. movie, you really have just, really like it's almost like the most grounded form of like a buddy comedy where they're they're fairly normal people that just don't work well together yeah yeah exactly it's just slightly different personalities and um, less less dramatic of a kind of change and i think it's almost more of just the situation rather than the personalities themselves yeah Exactly. And um and then on top of that, like I just like the performances are just really, really good in this movie. Like Robert De Niro is no stranger to comedy, but I feel like in this one, in most of the movies where he's in a comedy, it he it's like it almost seems obvious like this is a movie where he could just relax, like he doesn't have to work as hard. But I feel mm-hmm. like in this one he's actually doing his myth method actor shtick just as much as he would in a drama. But for a comedy, yeah, the uh, the the performances are, are really what kind of makes this movie stand out, or what what made it stick out to me. Um, I, I for the most part, I think it's a pretty run of the mill story. Oh, um, yeah. uh, it's just the direction and the casting uh, make it really grounded and make it so that these kind of situations that would be like uh, almost every scene ends in so. Like almost a punchline of sorts, but they do it in a really like kind of down to earth way, so that it doesn't feel like it's kind of smacking you over the head with its humor. Yeah, it's really hard for me to separate this film from its many counterparts, and that they they all just kind of are a blur. This kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, style of movie, it's very very formulaic, and I just mean it. Uh, in uh, in the way that you know me watching this now in 2021 
I can't really kind of pinpoint like what did it do originally versus what did it not compared to its competitors. I, I mean, I've seen the same kind of story over and over again. It always yeah. involves, you know, a, a good cop or two that you're rooting for. There's always corrupt cops. Yeah. There's always two leads with kind of dueling personalities or, uh, you know, uh, pathos. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's always generic Italian mob boss. And pr- I, lo- I looked him up, the screenwriter for this, George Gallo. Yes. Pretty much every one of his films that he's pinned is exclusively in this niche. Yeah. Ashamedly so. I think the first one of these that I've seen, I had ever seen that he had written uh, and that fits so many of these beats was the 2001 film which starred David Arquette and featured the hamster dance C-Spot Run. He wrote that? He wrote that. So yeah, my point is these movies are all kind of a dime a dozen. Yeah. But Midnight Run, I feel like uh, by having De Niro, by having uh, Charles Grodin there, Joe Pantoliano, and just the the direction from, uh, is it Martin Martin Brest, Brest, like really kind of took this material and, and elevated it to a point where it, it was a lot more entertaining than I think what was on the page yeah. I'll should get, have yeah. allowed. I'll get to uh, it when I get a little more into the history, but yeah, the uh, when it came to the acting, like it was heavily improvised on, and the director is notorious for doing take after take after take and pushing like performances to like their breaking point. Mm-hmm. And so I really think it was that combination of things. It was, yes, yeah, like Robert De Niro's being able to, he, you know, like being a method actor, like he, he gets into the character so that if Charles Grodin improvises something, he'll be able to, to roll with it. Mm-hmm. And then the director saying, you know, do it again and again and again. And, you know, like it, 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 it works. The, the script itself, yeah, I, I don't I'm 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 kind of curious to read it because I kind of want to wonder uh, how different it ended up being in the final uh, in the finished product versus the, yeah. uh, the script. Yeah, I would be, too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, so many of these moments kind of they felt generic, but like, I don't know, just De Niro really sold them like him going back and, and seeing his ex-wife. Yeah, that's just such a like kind of cliche bit for the story. But I mean, Robert De Niro can sell the hell out of pretty much anything, and, yeah. and it just worked so much. And then on and, the comedy side, like, it was, yeah, it was like these subtle little things made it really funny. Like, right before he walks into his ex-wife's door, he, like, looks down, and then Charles Grodin immediately says, you look nice. And then Robert <laughs> De Niro's facial expression right afterwards, it's like, if this was on, on paper, this would be a really boring line, but mm-hmm. their performance in there made it just surprisingly funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Breast and the cinematographer did a great job of capturing those uh, those facial expressions and doing so much with them. I remember mm-hmm. it's towards the end of the movie, one of the times where he calls um, his, uh, his his bail bond boss, Joe Pantoliano, and he's kind of uh, he he says he'll he'll shoot Charles Grodin's character. Uh, yeah. he'll, he'll throw him in a swamp, and then he just kind of like looks over at him they make eye contact and he shakes his head like no i would never do that (laughs) yeah but what it uh i'm curious what what all you kind of dug up about this movie because i I don't really know much about the production of it and i to be honest i don't really know much about martin breast other than what you just told me okay well um it was the mid 80s and um direct the director martin breast had made a big hit for paramount 
with, um, you know, the Eddie Murphy film Beverly Hills Cop. Big movie. It made like three sequels. Um, But Paramount wanted a follow-up film from him. And so he went ahead and started development of a buddy comedy script with screenwriter George Gallo, who had based the relationship of the two primary characters off of the bickering between his mother and father. And um, so they turned in the script to Paramount and Paramount went ahead and did the numbers based on the amount of set pieces and the action sequences and everything the script was calling for. They figured the budget was looking to be in the ballpark of $35 million, which made Paramount pretty uneasy. And so they felt that, you know, if they were going to make this movie, they were going to need a really bankable star. But um, the role of Jack Walsh was already set aside for Robert De Niro. Um, which was not perfect from Paramount's perspective because they they kind of promised it to him after um, refusing him uh, a leading role in the film uh, Big, and this was a sort of peace offering. But they kind of oh, uh, maybe this I'm is getting, widely I'm, known, but I had no idea that yeah. he was ever supposed to be in Big. Yeah, I'm 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 about to get to that. So they basically they needed a bankable star in the in the co-star for Robert De Niro because like. Okay, so the story of how he got associated with the film Big, the Penny Marshall hit film starring Tom Hanks that everybody knows and loves, and Tom Hanks is jumping on the piano keys and stuff. After the uh, De Niro filmed uh, the, Un- the Untouchables, he wanted to try something like really different, and he started uh, feeling the urge to do a comedy. And so um, that was when he pursued the lead role in Penny Marshall's Big. But um, and Penny was um, very interested and really wanted him to do it. But the studio wanted Tom Hanks instead, uh, partially because of the fact that Robert De Niro's name on billboard. Uh, they didn't want Robert De Niro's name on billboards. Um, uh, now, side note, had Robert De Niro and Penny Marshall gotten their way, the world would be a much stranger place. I. Are there screen tests of this somewhere? I need to see Robert uh, De Niro trying to per- play an eight-year-old, or, or what? Is, I forget how old the kid in Big was, but yeah, like that I would just be can't imagine that. Mm-mm. Yeah, the um, the problem at the time, the reason the studio wasn't going to back it was um, Robert De Niro was a big name in the film world, but he wasn't what they considered a bankable star. Like you could kind of put it this way like if you saw on the marquee that De Niro was in a particular movie you'd know it was going to be a good movie but you wouldn't go out of like you wouldn't go out of your way to bring everybody you knew to go check it out Mm -hmm. Um, his name was like a promise of quality but not like a money-making guarantee during a time when people were flocking to movies starring you know your Schwarzeneggers and your Stallones and Fords and Russells he was like an art house star not a blockbuster behemoth and so um so with Paramount already promising the role to De Niro as Walsh and still wishing for a like a, a really bankable co-star they, uh, that they uh, they demanded that the role of Jonathan Mardukas, the Duke, uh, had. First, they asked for it to be rewritten to be a woman in order to add sexual tension to the film and so that they could get Cher to play the role. Hmm. Uh, the director, Martin Bress, refused that. And so then they they demanded that uh, Robin Williams play the Duke. Williams was capital H huge at this point, but um, I wouldn't and, go see that movie. Yeah, and and Robin Williams really wanted to play it, but 
Martin Bress refused that as well because um, he had already become, begun auditioning people for the role of uh, the Duke and had become really impressed by Charles Grodin's audition alongside De Niro. Like he was just gobs, like just wowed by the audition. Side note on the audition process, according to Charles Grodin, the audition process was like fairly rigorous. The first audition was nearly three hours consisting entirely of improvisation. Kind of crazy. Yeah, but, that's um, wild. But yeah, Martin Bress was very impressed, you know, like put it on the line. Like I, I'm getting Charles Grodin for this role. And so Paramount said, um, go find your funding elsewhere. And they backed out of the movie entirely. But um, luckily Universal was still interested. So he got his cast. Um, he got funding and they started uh, going ahead with casting the rest of the the folks. Joe Pantoliano was Panto. Uh, Panto was given the opportunity by director uh, by the director to play one of the two goons that was chasing after them. But uh, Panto said that he would only play the Duke or Eddie Moscone. And so they gave him Moscone. He I feel like. I'm I'm pretty surprised by that actually. I I feel like he should have been cast immediately as a uh, as bail bondsman because yeah. this is such a Pantoliano character. It really is. Also, the the first thing I laughed at in this movie was him uh, his comb over. Why <laughs> <laughs> well, have five hundred dollars to Jack Welch and Amarillo, Texas, right away? Amarillo, Texas. Now listen, also, get Dorfler down here. Find him and get him down there too. You got it, Eddie. Yes. And so they, they went ahead and started filming it. Uh, Robert De Niro, in his typical method actor style, spent time observing real-life bounty hunters and police officers to prepare for the role. Charles Grodin, on the other hand, got all the research he felt was necessary for the role from a 10-minute call with his business manager. <laughs> but the method style did rub off on Grodin a little bit because he convinced Grodin to wear real handcuffs for the majority of his scenes. Mm -hmm. And they ended up leaving permanent scars on his wrist. Uh, Charles Grodin did a ton of improvising on the set, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and so De Niro, being a fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants style actor, uh, known in dramas to improvise to make other actors uncomfortable, um, was able to keep up with the long scenes where Gruden, Grodin was improvising for the majority. The, uh, the sequence... Um, in the grocery store, the litmus configuration scene was mm -hmm. entirely improvised. That's funny. That and, makes uh, sense. Yeah. Some people have pointed out that you can kind of see Robert De Niro's, Robert De Niro's surprise. Yeah. At, like, but I mean, it, that, that was kind of the setup in exactly. the story for that scene. So it makes so much sense. Yeah. And then, um, and then another really big one was, uh, I, I guess it wasn't in the script, but uh, I don't know if it was in the script and it was just, or it was just something that Robert De Niro had added to the character, but the constantly checking of the watch uh -huh. was something that the director wanted to naturally push, like push out of like, he wanted Charles Grodin to get it out of Robert De Niro in a really natural manner. Hmm. So he basically had them in the, in the train sequence with the, the good looking chicken scene. Yeah. He, he basically, he told, Grodin to just do whatever it took to make Robert De Niro laugh so that we could like kind of break the character, you know, like this will be the point in which they start getting along kind of thing. Sure. And so he'll reveal more about his character. I'm, I'm taking this paragraph from Vulture. Uh, 
the night box car scene, as Mr. Groden calls it, was, he said, improvised entirely. Uh, the situation begins with Mr. Groden as Mardukas shutting a boxcar in Mr. De Niro's face in an effort to escape him. Mr. De Niro, in the role of Jack Walsh, promptly boards the car from the other side in rage. But Mr. Groden said of the scene, we knew it had to end with De Niro revealing something personal about himself. The history of a wristwatch that has sentimental value. How do you get to that point in a couple of minutes where he's going to reveal himself? What do you say? Mr. Groden went back to his motel and wrote down about 15 lines he thought might change the mood of Mr. De Niro, who tends to stay enraged when he becomes enraged. Back to the boxcar with a crew of about 40 people looking on comes the crucial moment. Mr. Groden tries line number one. When you get your money for turning me in, you might want to spend some on your wardrobe. Not a glimmer of a smile, said Mr. Groden. Nothing. Director Martin Bress comes over. I love you. You've got to find a way. It took me 10 days to get ready for take one, Mr. Groden said. All those people in the boxcar, it was a tough situation. Out of desperation, I said, what could I say to Robert De Niro to get him off the mood he was in? That's when on take two, I asked him if he'd ever had sex with an animal. <laughs> Mr. De Niro's reaction is on the screen. Did you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good-looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us. Yeah, a couple there might have taken a shot at. <laughs> What's with you in that watch? What is it with the watch? You told me when you get to know me better. You told me about your, your feelings for chickens. I mean, how, how private could the watch be? What's the big secret? There you go. That's interesting. I did feel like that came kind of out of nowhere, but I... I, I it, I guess it seemed like something, you know, people would joke about randomly. But yeah, that that's that's pretty much uh the the history I got. It was a modest success at the box office. Um and uh it spawned three made for television sequels. I forget what what were those called? They had like some dumb names, right? Like another Midnight Run. Yeah, the Midnight like Run action pack all in 1994, another Midnight Run starring Christopher McDonald. Uh, Shooter McGavin, right? Yeah. Midnight Run Around and Midnight Run for Your Life. All right. They got real creative there. Oh, yeah, they did. I love that. When a movie is so, like, specifically character-based, but then they're like, you know what? Let's try and do it again. None of them seem to... I'm I'm reading through... None of them seem to even have John Mar, uh, Jonathan Mardukas' character in it. It's just Jack Walsh being a bail bondsman? That's wild. Yeah. And huh. kind of sad. Yeah. What happened to the three hundo? Now I'm going to pretend that that didn't happen, you know. Yeah. I don't I think most people do. I think even, you know, Robert De Niro tried getting the rights in 2010 to make a follow-up. Huh. Yeah. Something I found interesting. This is I think the only Danny Elfman score I've ever heard that has like no part of his dna that i i could yeah. tell in it this it sounded like every other kind of cop movie yeah when i found out it was danny elfman i was kind of surprised I mean, it wasn't a bad score it fits no. really well with with the vibe of the movie it just it, it was it was kind of the first indicator that told you you were watching a comedy That's because true. like the opening sequence was just uh you know, like, yeah, he had, like, you know, it was just, like, this tough guy was taking down, you know, uh, this 
you know, like grabbing the, you know, like. I feel like hitting him with the door of the car was supposed to be kind of comical. Yeah, it was mildly amusing. Yeah, but, but I, I like, think that was supposed to hint you like, oh, this is a fun tone cop thing. Yeah, I, I don't think it was trying to say this is deadly serious, but sure, it was sure. just like, this is a fun kind of movie, but then the music kicks in, dun, 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 mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, okay, I see what's going on. <laughs> and then, you know, you get to Panto when that comb over, and then you know yeah. for sure. And, the, and, the, and the, the, those button-ups. Oh yeah. The uh the, the second thing I laughed at um was uh he he's on the plane uh, riding out to uh to New York and he he takes the um the FBI badge and he's putting his own picture on it and just that little kid next to him's reaction. I thought that was funny. Yes, I wrote that down. Yeah, it's like the kid staring at him while he's doing the thing. Yeah, there's no like I don't know. Through the whole thing, there weren't that many just kind of big laugh out loud moments. It, it was all just kind of little bits like that. It's all these kind of natural reactions. Yeah. I did. I think the most cartoonish thing to me through the whole thing was uh, you mentioned them before because um, you said Joe Pantoliano was offered to play one of them. It was Joey and Tony, I believe. The like goons. They were. I feel like they were pretty kind of classic cartoonish sidekick yeah. goons. Yeah, I thought. I, I I thought it was almost like a nice precursor to. You don't really see that all, even in comedy. I don't know. Like the one, what I kind of compared it to in my head was the uh, uh, Craig Robinson and I forgot the other actors' characters in Pineapple Run. Yeah, yeah. As you know, like and Matheson, where, where he's like talk, try to talk over all the guy on the phone. Like they were like doofus goons. Yes, exactly. Easy way to add in some extra kind of comedy, but by, by just making some fucking bulk and skull type yeah. people. I I love the line. Uh, the the bail bondsman's uh, phone guy. Uh huh. Where he says he's got that. Where Pando is all excited. He's got the Duke. This calls for a celebration. Let's get donuts. I'll get some donuts. Yeah. He, <laughs> he always wants the celebratory donuts so that he can go, you know, talk to the talk yeah. to the mob boss. But, but it, before it you funny. know that he's talking to the yeah, mob exactly. boss, you're just like, wait, that's how they celebrate. That's a funny way to get. <laughs> and um, probably what I think was one of the funniest sequences, especially from uh, De Niro's side of things, was when he first goes into Groden's house. And he's yeah. a, like, and he's he's stuck he's stuck in the shower because the dog is attacking, and he's trying yeah, I wrote to that totally down. get this fucking dog out of here. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to add levity to the fact that he had completely just done a home invasion. Yeah, exactly. I feel like yeah, you told me before we watched this because uh, you watched it once and then we recorded and then you said you were gonna watch it again and do some more research. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you you kind of told me ahead of time that. This wasn't gonna be like an all-out comedy kind of thing, and yeah, and so yeah, it's it's kind of hard to pick and choose like gags and, and um, jokes from it, given how much of it is based on just kind of those quick uh, Im- improvisational reactions and oh, clips. Yeah, yeah th- there's 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 moments that are really good, and then but there's no like flat out like oh there's a that was a straight up gag. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I don't think was a gag, but I did find somewhat amusing, was when Robert De Niro shoots down a helicopter. Yeah, and then they just do this close oh up of God. his face where he's like, "Yeah, look at me, I just did that." That whole sequence of like the car chase, uh, 
with the helicopter before they end up in the river. I, yeah. I, I feel like that whole action sequence might have been just kind of a little bit too big for the budget of this movie or just for the yeah. britches of the director. I'm not sure. It just it felt a little awkward. It, uh, yeah, a little bit. I, I think they, they went a little, they tried to go a little too hard with those stunts that I don't think they were able to pull them off in a mm. interesting way. Yeah. And that, that explosion was ridiculous as ground as, <laughs> yeah. as the performances are in this film from the leads. It's still an over the top action movie. That's very like reductive uh, of, of the way, you know, procedurals work. I love yeah. the, the FBI guy who's been, you know, after, uh, Jack Walsh this whole time. Um, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name because they said it so many damn times in the movie. Uh, Mosley. Uh, yeah, Alonzo Mosley. Mosley just very ready to forgive Walsh of him <laughs> yeah. just like pretty much destroying that whole fleet of uh, you know vehicles. There's and a straight it, up litany of crimes that yeah, yeah Robert De Niro's yeah. character. Which like best case scenario, no one died in all of that, but I'm sure yeah. there were a lot of injuries. But yeah, he's very oh, willing yeah. to forgive as soon as uh, he's like, "Yo, I can give you this intel. We'll get this guy." Yeah, that's true. But I mean, it—that's just kind of a symptom of these movies. I'm not, yeah, yeah, not criticizing Midnight Run as a whole. I just I find it funny how how the cop movies work in, in general. Usually, oh yeah. Um, I, I I do find there were a lot of like just like the Tony and uh, Joey thing. There were a lot of other kind of little cartoonish recurring bits like um with mosley and his kind of second banana always being captain obvious basically yeah uh, i think I after they first discover that walsh stole mosley's identification he says i think walsh has your identification and then mosley always <laughs> just kind of looks over at him with this like dumbfounded face mm-hmm Never made yeah. me laugh out loud, but was always humorous. It's a fun watch. It's not a hysterical watch. I I I like uh, Charles Grodin and his uh, his head shaking just in general. I remember when they're trying to um, buy a bus ticket and uh, the credit card keeps getting declined. Grodin just keeps like kind of looking at the uh, or, or uh, Dukakis. Uh, he keeps looking at the uh, receptionist, ticket sales yeah. lady. And just kind of yeah. shaking his head like, why won't this guy, you know, get it? It's canceled. Yeah, they're not going to try it again. <laughs> yeah, the, the head shakes were great. In fact, overall, this movie makes me wonder why he wasn't able to get more roles. I mean, I've heard some of his avant-garde per performance shticks in the 70s and early 80s kind mm -hmm. of gave him, gave people a bad, you know, like a bad taste in their mouth about hiring Charles Grodin. Interesting. Well, like he used to do these things that like were just bizarre. Like he got permanently banned from Saturday Night Live because he uh the when he hosted in I think 77 78, he um he decided he was going to play a character that can't remember his lines. And so he just he was constantly ad-libbing and and pausing and saying, "Oh, I'm sorry. I can't remember." He, he had remembered his lines in all the rehearsals, and so it was, like, in, obviously intentional from the behind-the-scenes point of view. Yeah, but no but one else really knew that. Nobody got that. And then on top of that, like, um, he started an on-screen-only feud with David Letterman. Like, even though they're friends in real life, like, 
he ended up not being allowed on the show anymore because it was just like, I don't know. He would do all these weird things like where it was like every time he was on stage for anything, he had some sort of character he was going to play. I see. And so like it kind of put gave people, a, you know, like a bad taste in their mouth. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I just thought I figured after seeing this performance, you would imagine that he would get more roles but um, after this, he had what Beethoven, <laughs> yeah, the Beethoven think, franchise. Yeah, definitely not. I don't think he he is like a you know well known like a comedic staple. I think he's one of those names <laughs> yeah. a lot of people know and respect for like kind of you know roles like this and and where he's been here and mm-hmm. there. Um, I remember uh, he he was very funny on Louis uh, for those few episodes. Yeah, yeah, he, he he got on my radar thanks to it's always sunny mostly. That's what I'm talking about. Josh Groban. Oh, well, is he Charles Groban's son? He's probably funny. What do you think? Oh, if he's related to Charles Groban, he is. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, two totally different people. Charles Groban is a bitter old man with a giant head, and Josh Groban is a beautiful singer with the voice of an angel. Oh, he's a singer. Call Charles Groban a bitter old man one more time. Oh, See yeah. what happens. Whoa, 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 calm down. Man. All right, all right. Sorry. <laughs> talking about you know Charles Groban, bitter old man. Um, yeah, I, it. It makes a lot of sense that you say this was kind of based on married couple arguments. I'm thinking about one specifically, like uh, towards the end, I think when after they steal that truck or it was after the river sequence and they're arguing over who lied first. Yeah. He's like, you lied to me first as far as you know. Yeah, yeah. That whole argument. I might have lied to you before that, but you didn't know I lied. You didn't know that I had lied. So as far yeah. as you knew, you lied to me first. Yeah. Just the logistics of that whole argument felt very much mm-hmm. like an old married couple. Compared to other movies in this subgenre, the buddy comedy, mm-hmm. how would where would you place this in terms of uh like where would you rank it? it it's interesting because it uh it has such a real real take on the characters, but everything else kind of around that seems kind of generic. Um, yeah. So it, it's like, it, it's bizarrely somewhere in between like a, uh, you know, a typical kind of buddy cop. We, we were talking about 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop earlier and like planes, trains, and automobiles somehow in my mind. Like yeah. somehow I feel like it's those things wrapped together. I, I do okay. think that they they're they work off each other in a really unique way that uh I like more so than a, a lot of the uh, you know, buddy cop movies. Um this he also wrote Bad Boys, which is fun, but and I, I love Will Smith. I love Martin Lawrence, um, but that's kind of a different style of comedy I, yeah I, I feel like uh groden and de niro um are just so unique and, and so grounded and and that I- improvisation really comes through and makes it feel real uh yeah, exactly. that I, I probably would put it above some of the other ones probably it's it just it's different styles of comedy so it's hard to hard to compare i, I think i have to be in a specific mood if i would want to watch this compared to a uh, a shanghai noon or a bad mm. boys, the ones that are a bit more just popcorny, fun kind yeah. of thing. I see that. I could, I could definitely see that. Yeah, in, in a lot, in a lot of ways. I, yeah, I, I, I probably agree. This wouldn't be something I would just like put on mm-hmm. if I wanted to just like you know like because like you want to watch a zany you know then you watch you know like 
a zany buddy comedy, then you pick something else, but you want to watch a good one, then you'd watch this one. Uh, yeah, it, it, this is this holds an interesting place in the subgenre. I mentioned earlier, I don't think that much of the action really works. Yeah, it's like in the in the buddy comedies, you know, like you've got your lethal weapons that are much more focused on the action than the comedy. There's like maybe three jokes in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, like your, you know, your, your rush hours or your Shanghai noons where they're pretty much all comedy, but they also have Jackie Chan in them. So the action is pretty good. And then you've got, you know, on the other side of things, you, you got pretty much just the strict comedies. And this is like, this is like trying to be, it's, tr- it's almost like it's trying to have the action of a lethal weapon, but because it's trying and like not and falling flat, it makes it a little less enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I don't think any of the action sequences like were flat out bad. They were just no, not never it just super feels like, visually interesting. No, that it's it's not, and and it's also like it just feels like someone who sits around analyzing action sequences, but like with that without like I don't know, it felt like there were almost no stakes involved. It was just like one more obstacle, mm-hmm. and it is, it, but yet not a whole lot of spectacle on top of that. Yeah, it's like there's very little tension in the scenes, and, they, and there was also there was little bits well, of humor in those sequences. Uh, I really like when it's um, Marvin and uh, and Jack and um, I, I always forget Groden's character's name. The Duke. Well, I know the Duke, but I mean, okay, yeah, Mark no one ever Lucas. calls him Jonathan in it, I guess, but yeah. Uh, when it's the three of them being chased by the helicopter that's that's shooting out their windows and stuff. Uh, yeah. Although a lot of the driving uh, in it, I don't think works super great. But I, I just think Groden's reactions in, in that are yeah. amusing. Uh, when him him calling them the worst bounty hunters. You couldn't even deliver a bottle of milk. They, they, they were able to get a few kind of good gags in there and the, the the repetitive gag of smacking people with car doors was amusing i almost wonder if it would have balanced out a little better if the you know like marvin the third bounty hunter had like i don't know as strong of a performance sure as them two so like they had like a wacky comedian or something because like there were moments where some of the stuff that he was doing could have been seen as like really funny, mm-hmm. but instead it just came off as just you know like the asshole bounty hunter kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like um, his stupidity was, was funny uh, on on paper. Yeah, it, it, and I yeah, think on, it was it was funny in the film, but usually not because of his performance. Yeah, like I mean, he's lounging out, splayed on the hotel bed, eating like wings or something. Mm. And, the, and he's got this other guy uh, handcuffed to the door, and he's like, "Can I at least have a fry?" And he's like, "I told you no." And, yeah, and I think like, it should have been Panto as well. I think Panto that should have also played by Panto and Eddie Murphy dual role uh, kind of situation. He should have clumped himself into all the other roles. Uh, you know, in fact, yeah, he should have been the be- the the mobster too. Yeah, the mob boss. Uh, I mean, he was okay, but he wasn't ever super interesting. Um, yeah, it was an intense Nothing scene with Dennis him Farina, and but... with, with him and Groden in the car. 
when he was saying yeah. he would kill his wife too. I mean, it was a good performance, but if it would have been Joe Pantoliano, uh, it, it would have been better. Yeah, I think I don't, I don't know. Like, there are certain things that, like, when it comes to comedy movies, like a, a movie has to do in order for other comedy movies to like say, "Oh, that's on the table. That's possible." Mm-hmm. And one of the things is making the bad guy as funny as the rest of the yeah. cast. And I don't, I don't think this that was trying to do that. I think it was no. trying to be grounded and it wanted all that humor to, to be natural. But then there yeah. are those moments with the uh, the FBI agents and stuff that seem kind of more cartoonish than everything else. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Some of it seems a little uneven. But a- as a whole, though, I-, I do think it's worth watching and that it was a fun funny movie i would probably recommend this uh if we were making top five buddy up movies top five buddy comedy kind of things it would it would either be like you know number five four or or four to me or an honorable mention like it it would be up there it would definitely be mentioned yeah it's definitely mentionable for sure and uh, it's one of those that like when i first saw it a few years ago like i was like really really surprised that i had kind of stumbled on it Mm-hmm. And I was like, how have I never heard of this movie before? Because like, I think at the time I was, I was just kind of looking around for buddy comedies that I hadn't seen. Yeah. And like, it, it's, I stumbled on it on a random list and I was like, I got to check it out. And I was just like, how did this get past me for so long after watching it? And I was like, yeah, it definitely deserves a mention and it definitely deserves to be talked about a little more than it is. I remember it, uh, in, in Rick and Morty, uh, Jerry, the, the dad character yeah, this is his favorite movie there's an episode where there are other jerry's from multiple dimensions there the this is chris parnell's character and they all get excited to uh to set the settings on the tv for them to all to watch midnight run together who wants to come watch midnight run yeah. with director's commentary on uh, yeah. definitely yeah. first definitely. one there gets to adjust the picture settings oh, yes. the factory tent setting is always too high the factory tent setting is always too high i do not remember that i, I gotta rewatch that episode. <laughs> should we ask the question oh how has it aged yeah that is the question how has it aged i was a little nervous from the opening scene because it's like, oh, is this this seems like okay, this cop is just uh invading the home of uh this uh this black man and throwing him in yeah. the car, taking him okay, is this that kind of cop movie? But uh overall I was surprised there wasn't anything radically I, I think uh, offensive in this movie for something made in nineteen eighty eight. I think that uh I'm still, I keep blanking on his name. Uh, Alonzo Mosley, uh, played by Rafet Cotto, or Cotto. Uh, a pretty good supporting role, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of depth to his character, but he did a good no, job. No, but he, he got they, a lot of they, screen time. Um, yeah, they gave And he was time. able to kind of you know, talk with everyone. I don't know, just better than some black roles at the time as That's you, you could true. see uh, explored in our episode um about uh, Hollywood shuffle yeah i think it obviously just like anything it probably could have used more diversity uh, for the for yeah. the whole like this movie i'm i'm always surprised when a movie from the 80s or older like ages did this well yeah i thought i thought it could yeah it pretty much deserves the probably highest rating you can give a movie from the 80s without being extremely like pressing it for its times the mm. mostly harmless award 
Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it really helps that it's a comedy that really just hinges off of these jokes that are just about the characters. It doesn't yeah. ever try and... I don't know. I feel like that's always a thing with the zanier comedies trying to, I don't know, maybe hit too many nails with, with the one little shaky hammer they have of, and trying to, like, touch all the subject matter and trying to spoof all these different things that maybe they're not that well-educated on. But uh, it just stuck with these characters and it, it represented them in a holy way, an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, there could have been a few more female roles on screen. Obviously, yeah. That's something we almost always point out. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that were there, given more spring screen time, I could see them as being solid characters. Mm-hmm. Like none of them were, you know, like it seemed like it, they, you know, like they were, they were written with some modicum of, of the respect. We only learn about their wives from them and their conversations. Yeah. Really. Uh, other than you, you see his ex-wife in that one scene. Um, but you don't, yeah. she doesn't really kind of represent herself much there. And it, no, it would have been just... interesting to hear her perspective on, you know, choosing to be with <laughs> this uh, supposedly corrupt police chief. Um, I, I don't think that would have fit into the movie, but it would no, have been interesting. It would not. It, I, I, that's something I walked away from the movie wondering. Like, um, what was the story there? Yeah. Maybe yeah. it would have been a better movie if it was Cher instead of Charles Grodin. It might have been. We, we'll never know. I thought it was a great yeah. movie, but come on, throw Cher in whatever. Yeah. Throw her in the next Ninja Turtles. It'll get better. Are they making a new Ninja Turtles? I just always assume that. Next Star Wars, next Marvel, whatever. Just throw Cher yeah, in there. I, hey. Make her Galactus. Okay. Ah, there we go. She's the next uh, Infinite War villain thing. Okay. They, they destroyed Josh Brolin. But her, his creator was. I mean, if they made Kurt Russell an entire planet, that's, make, that that actually happened. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> what what do we have coming up uh, in the ne- next two weeks? Uh, Will, what's our next episode going to be for the listeners? Uh, the two thousand seven. Uh, uh actually, comedy. I, I think it was two thousand nine. Maybe maybe I'm crazy. But either okay, way, one of the two thousand years. Pineapple, Pineapple Express. Express. I'm really excited for this yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, one, one day I want to do a kind of top five stoner comedies thing, but this will be a good like ramp up to that once we ever do that. Okay. I want to, you know, but yeah, we'll, we'll be re-examining Pineapple Express. Uh, so go give it a watch. It's on Nerd Florks. Take off your earphones right now. Go watch Pineapple Express on the Netflix and be ready for it in, in two weeks. And as always... Don't forget to write in to Gag Real Pod uh, if you have your own thoughts on Midnight Run, on Simpsons, on anything we've talked about previously, or uh, yeah. or on Pineapple Express. Uh, if you write into yeah. us soon, then we can include that in in the next podcast. Absolutely, yeah. Give yeah, hit us up on that or help. I mean, go all the way back in time. We'll we'll still respond to Spinal Tap talk. That's know? very like true. Any of our episodes. Yes, as always, uh, you can find us as well on on the Twitter 
at Gag Reel Pod. You can find us at the uh, the Gag Reel Pod Facebook page. And that's a group too, Will, or just a page? I forget. It's a page. I should probably make it a group and a page. And we have a website, gagrealpod.com. Gagrealpod.com. Go check that out. There's always, we always put up uh, alternative art on there from the movies. You can see some, you know, screenshots or just some posters that maybe you didn't see. That's all I got. Have a good one. It has been a doozy, folks. It's over now. Gaga doodle doo.